So welcome, welcome everyone to our April Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, I thank you for being with us, those of you who are um, many timers, um, during our exciting and eventful and pretty varied year, yeah, so far. And um, we are actually in the throes of organizing our next year's speaker, speaker series, and look forward to um, hopefully an even more kind of varied array of scholars and memoirists and visual artists. Um, so uh, keep your eyes and ears out. Hopefully by our May rounds with Priscilla Wald, I will have a full list um, to share with you so that you can mark your calendars in advance. Um, but that's what's happening right now. And as I say each and every month, um, it's such an honor to uh, introduce our speakers and to stand before this room every month. Um, because as I kind of make note, it's, um, it's here that the heart of our work really lies, in the writers and teachers and students and clinicians all working and interested um, and dedicated to um, work at the intersections of narrative and healthcare. Um, so welcome, and if you're new to us, um, know that this is kind of a hotbed of a lot of activities. So, you know, stick around. The wine and cheese is here, not just for, uh, you know, our uh, enjoyment, although it is, but it also somehow becomes uh, fodder for really creative and interesting uh, affiliations between people. So, you know, papers get co-authored in this room, and grants get written, and projects get thought up. So um, think about that as you get your wine and cheese at the end. Um, I want to also make note of the fact that our master's degree um, is beginning in the fall of this year. Hooray! Um, anyone who hasn't kind of been privy to all of my rantings about how excited we are about the master's, we're very excited about the master's. Um, we have one more information session coming up, Pat, on April, April the 20th in Lowe Library. Yes, you have to sign up online, so if you go to www.narrativemedicine.org, um, you have to actually RSVP for the information session. Um, so if you're interested, know people who are interested, please do come. Um, before I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight, I want to thank a number of people. Uh, the first is Joe Gattuso and our friends at uh, MBS Vox and uh, Common Health, without whom our speaker series this year would not be possible. I want to thank the wonderful faculty club and Tony and uh, all the great people who um, so kind of patiently and uh, generously uh, help us uh, make this a really community event every month. Um, I want to thank the uh, Columbia Center for New Media who has helped us since January put our speaker series online as audio podcasts. If anyone is not aware, there is a link from our website where you can go and hear Michael Greenberg, Perry Class, uh, Nellie Harmon from last year, uh, last month, and now Julie Solomon. Um, and I wanted to just make uh, one more note, which is that our uh, stalwart photographer, Connie, um, is not here this month, uh, but her not being here kind of makes me uh, notice how wonderful her entirely voluntary services have been. So uh, in absentia, I think. Um, so, I now have uh, the absolute pleasure of introducing uh, 
uh, Julie Solomon, who is our speaker for this evening. Um, and I say this part of her biography first, because to me it's the critical part. Julie Solomon is a native of Seaman, Ohio. And as an Ohio native myself, I have to pause and think that perhaps, you know, truly observant and incisive eyes are always born in Ohio, maybe. Um, but she lives in New York City now. She is a best-selling author, was a reporter and a critic uh, for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and her work has really um, been published uh, very widely in um, such magazines as Vanity Fair, Vogue, Bazaar, The New Republic. Um, she's also the author of uh, several best-selling uh, works, including The Devil's Candy, uh, which is about filmmaking, right, in Hollywood, um, Facing the Wind, and also relevant to this particular book, uh, Rambam's Ladder, is that the right way to say it, Rambam? Rambam's Ladder, uh, which is about the philosopher Maimonides, um, after whom the hospital in which she writes is named. Um, so I want to, first of all, draw your attention to the remarkable title that uh, Julie will be reading from this evening. It's not just hospital, make note. It's hospital, man, and no colon after that. Man, woman, birth, death, infinity, plus red tape, bad behavior, money, God, and diversity on steroids. Um, so <laughs> I think you know you can really say nothing after that. Um, it's a wonderful title. Um, I think the thing that really charged me up when I was reading this book is that it's both particular and so widely reaching. Um, it is particular in that this is a story of a particular place at a particular time. It's about Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, in you know the 21st century. And in some ways, it couldn't happen anywhere else but in that particular place, right? This place where you know the Chinese bubble tea store is next to the Indo-Pak grocer, right? Is uh, down the street from the mosque, is around the corner from the Orthodox temple, right? We have Brooklynites nodding. <laughs> I see here. Um, but yet, you know, there's so much particularity in this uh, book, but also it's about every such institution in some ways, you know, the very one we're standing in, perhaps. Um, you know, it's about life and death and suffering and joy and personalities and politics and nations and languages and voices, kind of ringing out, colliding, mixing together in this symphony of humanity, if you will. And um, I think that the success of uh, Julie Solomon's ability to communicate all of this to us is, you know, and I'll pause it, kind of from her ability to be this involved and watching fly on the wall, this uh, really critical position of the witness that I've mentioned before um, as I've stood up here, um, which allows one, in a sense, to both stand in a place and see, um, but at the same time, what this book did for me was it held up a mirror um, to allow kind of the reader, or all of us as readers, and all of us as healthcare consumers and clinicians, to in fact better see ourselves. And so with that, I am so delighted to give you Julie Solomon.
so much. That was such a beautiful introduction. We Ohio girls have to stick together. <laughs> um, you know, my parents are from Eastern Europe, and uh, I remember when we were kids, they were, my father was from a very small town in Czechoslovakia, and my mother from a not much larger town, and they had actually gone through the Holocaust, so most of the Jews were killed, and they were from small towns to begin with. And I remember as kids, though, we used to visit relatives all over the world, and every place we went, there was somebody from the town my father had grown up with, which seemed impossible. There were millions of them, even though there had only been a few of them, and that's how I feel about people from Ohio. Um, <laughs> the Potska Potska Rus of the United States. Um, so how did I come to write this book? Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm the daughter of the, a doctor and the sister of a doctor and the, and the sister-in-law of a doctor and the stepsister of a doctor, but I'm, I'm not one myself. Um, and uh, uh, I was trying to think the last time I had medical training, I was a candy striper at Adams County Hospital in Ohio, but I don't think that prepared me for too much except you know, feeding old people food when they were sort of parked in the hospital for a long time in those days. How I came to write this book, um, I'll tell you about it because I think that the the process of since this is narrative rounds, you're interested in narratives and how they get started. Um, I had written a book called Rambam's Letter, and Rambam was Maimonides, uh, who was a philosopher and physician who lived about a thousand years ago. And um, among the many things he did, which was to write commentary on the Torah, uh, to write, uh, he didn't write scripts, there were no drugstores in those days, but he did heal. Um, and he wrote vastly on all kinds of subjects, on ethics, on health, on healing, and he wrote about charity, the eight levels of giving. And the book I wrote about Maimonides was looking at um, what modern charity and philanthropy mean uh, reflect, refracted through the teachings of this teacher, the eight level, levels of giving in the 21st century. So anyway, one day I get a phone call from this woman who starts talking to me in a very fast Brooklyn accent. And she says, uh, hello, I work at a place called Maimonides Hospital. I read your book about Rambam's Ladder. I feel we have a karmic connection. We have to meet. So I said, okay. So we met for coffee. And she told me about the place she worked. She had just gone there from Beth Israel in Manhattan. And um, she told me about a hospital where 67 languages were spoken, which right away caught my attention. I, at that time, was a, a culture writer for the New York Times, writing about arts and about different uh, cultural matters around the city. And... Um, she wasn't pitching me to write a story per se, she just wanted to get together. And she was telling me about how this place had been once a, an all Jewish hospital. It had been founded 100 years earlier to serve the immigrant community of Borough Park, which at that time was all Jewish. Subsequently, many of those Jews became Orthodox, so the hospital is glot kosher, which means super kosher. But the neighborhoods around the hospital became, as you describe it, Brooklyn, which means 67 languages spoken here, but 25% of the patients are still not just Orthodox Jews, but Hasidic Jews. So um, it was all very interesting, and I said thank you, and that was that. And then almost a year later, I got a call from Alan Astro, who was an oncologist at St. Vincent's Hospital, who was doing a series of 
rounds on spiritual, spirituality and healing because as an oncologist, he often had to deal with matters that went beyond medical matters. But how do you deal with suffering patients, with patients who are dying, with patients' families? And his feeling was that doctors especially were not that well-trained in dealing with those matters. And so he set this series of rounds up, which he did at various hospitals, and I actually came up here to Columbia Presbyterian at that time, it was called Columbia Presbyterian. Um, and uh, the rounds were, I think at that time it was a priest and a rabbi, and other ones sometimes there's a Hindu, different people from all different religious backgrounds. It was fascinating, there was, it was packed, it was a cold December day, and about 250 people had stayed after work to go to these rounds. And I thought, this was incredible, that people who had worked really hard all day dealing with these matters cared enough to stay and think about them some more in a different context. And I really liked him. He was this, I think he had just turned 50, this was about four or five years ago, and he was one of these people who's a little gawky, he still seemed kind of like my 14-year-old son, except he was 50, um, and there was something very gentle about him, and very, um, I don't know, maybe in some ways he reminded me of my father, who knows, but um, I did like him very much. And I thought that was that. And then two months later, I got an email from a friend of mine who had had ovarian cancer, and she said, my medical prognosis is fairly good, things are going well, but I'm really sad because my wonderful oncologist, Alan Astro, is leaving St. Vincent's and moving to Maimonides Hospital because they're starting a new cancer center. So at that point, I thought, one, two, three, whether you live in Eastern Europe or Southern Ohio, three means you've got to go to Brooklyn. And so I got on the D train, and I went. And I'm just going to read you a little bit about what I found when I walked into the waiting room at Maimonides. Walking into the waiting room at Maimonides for the first time rekindled my first impression of New York when I was a newcomer just out of college, feeling that same paradoxical rush of being overwhelmed and utterly engaged by the motley chaos, the interplay of harshness and sentimentality, the magnitude and intimacy of human convergence. In the small rural village in southern Ohio where I spent my first 18 years, my family had been the diversity. Being the other was part of our job as the only Jews in a fundamentalist Christian farming community. The Hussites, who seemed to treat Maimonides as their home, were alien to me, but also familiar. Part of my background is a descendant of Eastern European Jews. Just as recognizable were the many people, patients and caregivers, speaking broken English in many accents. My parents, too, were immigrants, Hungarian speakers from Czechoslovakia, and my family had intimate connections with medical issues. My father had been a patient as well as a physician. He died of lung cancer when I was still a teenager. There was another connection. Borough Park was said to have the largest remnant of Holocaust survivors outside Israel. Though my parents settled in Appalachia, they too had survived the death camps. My father had been able to relocate in an unlikely spot because he offered a necessary ingredient. He could tend to the sick. In return, this small rural village provided him a haven and a source of meaning after he had lost so much. Was that formulation lost to history? Judging from the foreign names of the doctors who have replaced him, I didn't think so, but it was a different world. Between 1970 and 1998, the foreign-born population in the United States increased from 9.6 million to 24.4 million. 
according to official tallies, a low estimate. In 2004, the foreign-born population numbered 34.2 million, or 12% of the total U.S. population, approaching the 14% who moved here during the last big immigrant wave a century earlier, when Maimonides was founded. The attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001 exploded any residual sentimentality for the American melting pot. Now the mass movement of newcomers fueled larger apprehensions. The war on terror morphed into the war in Iraq, and larger, large divisions loomed everywhere. Muslim versus Christian and Jew, Muslim versus Muslim versus Hindu, modernity versus fundamentalism, consumerism versus environmentalism, us versus them, us versus us. It took just a few visits to see that Maimonides was an epicenter of these social forces, a petri dish of the post-9-11 world. What is alien and what is common? The question of community identity and responsibility was under constant discussion and examination. So this is not a medical text. It's a look at the hospital as an institution. Um, you know, it sounds foolish in a way. Of course, a hospital is huge. They employ thousands of people. Um, of course, there will be money matters. Of course, there will be uh, politics, internal and external. Um, but I have to say, it was a surprise to me how much those other issues determined what kind of medical care people get. Um, and I think it's, it's been very interesting as I've done readings around the country, depending what the audience is, when I speak to non-medical audience and they hear that money plays such a big role in it, even though they must have been to a doctor at some point in their life, they all go, oh, they're just in shock. But I think that the D, you know, learning what a DRG, that's a sort of eye-opening, it's like losing your virginity. It's sort of an eye-opening experience. You had no idea that the reason you're being zoomed through the system is because of this elaborate set of rules and regulations that you know nothing about. And so um, that is... Uh, so the question that's come up, how in the world did they let you in? Um, now, this didn't happen overnight. Once I decided to do this, and I started talking to my agent about it, my editor at Penguin Press about it, I had decided if I was going to do this book, I was going to be there almost every day for a year, which means I would have had to quit my nice job at the New York Times. So it was a big leap, and I had to make sure that the hospital was on board. And there again, luck always plays, you know, E.B. White once said, in New York, you have to be willing to be lucky. And so I was willing to be lucky, but the luck has to come too. And my luck was that Pam Breyer, who is the head of the hospital, is an interesting, brilliant, eccentric woman who also had happened to read, uh, have read a couple of my books and was a fan. She also had, she ran Bellevue for a, a few years, so you know that she's a tough cookie. And so um, she had thought about just writing about a hospital as an institution would be fascinating, but she was too busy running hospitals to do it. And then I kind of stumbled into her office one day, and it seemed like something that might be interesting to her. My second piece of luck was that the chairman of Maimonides is Marty Payson, who used to be the vice chairman of Time Warner, and before that, Warner Brothers. So he came out of the movie business, where all publicity is good publicity, which is not usually the stance of most hospitals. And the third, there we go, three again. The third piece of luck is, I'm trying to do this like a lecture, so number three, the third piece of luck was that, um, that the public relation 
person from the hospital had left a couple of months before I showed up and somebody new had not yet been hired. So there was nobody to say, are you out of your mind? And that was how I ended up getting my badge that said writer. I had a hospital badge. I could go anywhere but into surgery. And so my adventure began. I also got Alan Astro on board, which was a huge leap of faith on his part. Um, because one of the things that interested me about him coming into this world was that he was an outsider coming from Manhattan to this Brooklyn hospital, and that he was at an interesting career point, which I think many people hit. When you're a physician for many years, you're working in a practice within or without a hospital, but usually in a faculty practice, which he was, there comes a point when you think, hmm, well, I've been complaining about this for so many years, maybe I could run it, but running is not the same as complaining. And he was willing to, and he had decided that he wanted to try to be a chief. And he knew that he probably was not going to get the chance to do that at St. Vincent's Politics. Uh, the Salek organization had taken over the cancer center there, and they were looking for big marquee people to bring in. It was like the movie business, you know, let's have a star doc who will bring in the patients. And he, and he had been there his whole career. After Yale Medical School and his residency, he ended up at St. Vincent's. And so he was the kid who they'd known since he was a resident. He needed to move, to move up. And so he agreed to let me follow his progress, which was pretty risky on his part because he could have failed. He does not have the natural temperament to be an administrator. He's very, very, very nice and not, doesn't want to hurt people's feelings. And sometimes those things are not compatible. Um, or you have to learn to be pretty tough. And that became a running question through the book, is Dr. Astro too nice? Um, they didn't phrase it quite like that, but something. So as I was thinking of all these different issues, money, politics, all these lovely things in the subtitle, uh, the question was, as I did more and more reporting and started to focus in on certain stories, the first year of the cancer center was going to provide a through line because it touched on many of these issues. The new cancer center was being built partly for community reasons. The hospital is the pillar of the community, but cancer is the big new money machine, I hate to say it. Heart, in the 80s, Maimonides built a new heart center, but who wants to do heart surgery now? So heart surgery out, radiation in, let's build a cancer center. Now, Brooklyn also did not have a cancer center, a, a structural cancer center within, a hot, within one big hospital, but the big issue that they have to deal with in Brooklyn that you don't have to deal with here in Manhattan is you're in Manhattan. And in Brooklyn, the hospitals all deal with the Manhattan factor. You know, this is the place where uh, anybody who has good insurance, when they, as they always say at Maimonides, when they want to be treated with their insurance, they go into Manhattan. When they're dying, they come into our emergency room. And it's not quite as crude as that, but those are some of the financial realities of the situation. And so, even though I wanted to deal with all these issues, one of the things that, two things that emerged very clearly throughout the course of the year, no matter what issue I was dealing with, whether it was medical care, whether it was uh, the politics, whether it was the money, the two main themes that ran through the whole book were communication and miscommunication. Now, on the most basic level, what do you do when you have 67 languages? How do you communicate in that most basic way? But then, 
How do doctors communicate with patients even when they speak the same languages? How do nurses and technicians talk to one another? How do the physicians, how do the different people on these complicated teams talk to one another? How do you pass information along when nurses are working 12-hour shifts three days a week and the residents are working a different set of hours and the physicians are working a different set of hours and most of the physicians no longer are the home care physicians of patients. It's a new, per, it's a new game every time a new patient steps in the door. How do you keep the information going? How do you keep those charts from becoming a game of telephone? And that became very fascinating to see how those issues played out. Respect, another major issue. During the year I was there, Pam Breyer, the president, put into operation a code of mutual respect, which were basically monthly uh, courses in, I think, what we would call how to behave in kindergarten. You know, right. you know, if you're a surgeon, and it was, it, what a surprise, they decided to institute this program in the surgery department. I'm sure that comes as a shock to all of you, um, that, that the best behavior didn't always happen uh, in the perioperative section of the hospital. But it wasn't just that kind of respect and disrespect that was an issue. It was also within these communities. Um, at the Cancer Center, for example, there was a, they had to build, the, they ended up build, building the Cancer Center almost a mile away from the main hospital. Part of that was a real estate decision. This is New York. Part of it was the fact that the Orthodox Jewish population didn't want to have the cancer center too close to where people were living because it was a shame to have somebody in your family go into the cancer center. And, and even today, it was surprising about that. And so there were all kinds of different issues. But then the cancer center was in the middle of Chinatown, and they couldn't get a kosher vendor to come in there because he said, who's going to come in off the street to eat kosher food there? They said, we'll make a kosher Chinese food. They're still negotiating after, two years after the book came out. So the book ended up having 12 chapters. I wish I could say this was premeditated for a, one chapter for each month of the year. It turned out to be an accident. Um, but the TikTok of the book, one day I was having a, a discussion with my editor, and we agreed that she said to me, the TikTokers people, and I think all of you might say in your actual work, it's true. The TikTok is people. We can talk about healthcare reform. We can talk about all these different issues, but I will guarantee you the people in this hospital, the patients will have a good day or a bad day depending on how a bunch of individuals treat them. And that is something that I think often gets lost in the equation. And so I focused on the people. And what I tried to do was really do this as an upstairs, downstairs. So. The administrators are part of the picture, the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, the floor sweepers. You know, that was another thing that was, shouldn't have been surprising, but how difficult it is to keep a hospital clean was absolutely amazing to me. But of course it makes sense because, yes, there are other big institutions like hotels, like airports, where a lot of people come and go, but they usually shut down at night. Here, it doesn't really shut down. And so um, the notion of cleanliness, and one thing that Maimonides, I don't know if you have it quite as much up here, but because it is still in the middle of a heavily orthodox neighborhood, and even though the neighborhood is now very multicultural, the local Hasidic community still considers this 
their hospital, and in a community of equals, they are the most equal. And so they have Hatsola, which is the ambulance corps, the Orthodox ambulance corps, which brings a huge number of patients to the hospital. They are the watchdogs, so they're going through, you know, marking the dirty floors, marking, you know, everything. It's like having a whole separate JCO review every day of the of the year. During my year, they, they actually did have a JCO review, which was itself kind of an interesting experience. But I thought I would introduce you to, uh, shortly after I got there, uh, I went to a lecture that they were, uh, that was going on for the residents in the ER. Now, Maimonides has an incredible, who doesn't have a busy ER in New York, but Maimonides has a nutty, crazy, busy ER, and the cacophony is out of sight. And I was, uh, I was in this class, and at the end of it, the guy who ran the emergency department uh, uh, introduced me, Stephen Davidson, to the group. He said, we've got this writer here uh, sitting in the back of the room, so if any of you want to say anything to her during the course of the year, feel free. She's got permission to wander around. So at the end, this kid comes up to me, young doctor, uh, in his 20s, and, I, and he, he says... Um, he says, well, I just started here a few months ago, and I've been keeping the daily, di a daily diary blog. He said, would you like to see it? And then when he told me he was from Nebraska, I almost kissed him because I thought, wow, you are the real minority, a young white guy from Nebraska who, in Maimonides, it doesn't exist, but there he was. And his name was David Gregorius, and, and later I found out how he got there. He got there in a way that I could not have made this up. His girlfriend at the time was a graduate, uh, going, entering graduate school in psychology, and she was applying to schools all over the country. They were living out in Los Angeles, and she was thinking of applying to some schools in New York, and she said, you ought to apply to a couple of hospitals in New York for your residency. So this is Davy Gregorius. Later, he remembered picking Mount Sinai because one of his teachers in medical school had gone there. As he recalled, quote, the other one was obviously Maimonides, but I really don't remember picking it, he said. I thought I'd put Methodist. I thought I'd put some kind of M, but the whole application process is clicking on computers. Click, click. When I got the email back inviting me for an interview to Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, whatever. I went, what? But still I went. I thought, I've never been to New York. I'll check it out. And so he did. And this is what he found. The hospital in Borough Park did not fit Davy's blithe vision of work hard, play hard. His, his goal was to become a doctor in a town next to a ski slope. So he'd do ER for a couple days and he'd ski, maybe do a little ski patrol ER work. His mem there is not much skiing in Brooklyn. His, mem his memories of his first foray into the Maimonides emergency room were vague. It was crowded, really crowded. Stretchers with patients were lined up two and three deep, with the lucky ones semi-secluded behind curtains that barely closed. He noticed, but didn't fully comprehend, that the melting pot mayhem, Hussites, Chinese, Pakistanis, Haitians, Russians, Bulgarians, did not seem to include anybody like him, a tall, skinny, curly-haired, dark-eyed, non-Jewish, non-Muslim, non-Asian, non-African, non-Italian, white surfer ski boy from the Midwest. <laughs> the visual overload was matched by the audio. 
Tower of Babel at top volume, accompanied by the constant beeping of monitors, pagers, telephones. The usual ER smells of antiseptic and bodily stink, but also strange spicy odors he couldn't place. Had he landed in the third world or a developing nation, whatever the correct terminology of the moment was? Before he could panic, he came across evidence he was indeed firmly situated in the first world, 21st century. Maimonides had Healthmatics ED, a very cool, very tomorrow computer system that, among other things, allowed doctors and nurses to track a patient in real time. The computer monitors were stationed like beacons of sanity throughout the room. For Gregorius, they made the chaos almost comprehensible. Now, Maimonides does not have the busiest ER in the country or even in the city. That The year I was there, they saw only 84,000 patients. However, the size of the emergency room was small. And so the, the head of this emergency room, who's a real computer nerd, um, once did this formula where he figured that, um, that the... the uh, Normal, he figured out the concentration of humanity in terms of patients per square foot per year. Then he compared the density to other hospitals of comparable size. Maimonides was packing in six patients per square foot per year. The average at other hospitals seeing comparable numbers of patients was two or three. The next worst he could find logged in a mere four and a half. Surely this was the perfect fix for the adrenaline junkies who chose emergency medicine as their specialty. But even thrill-seekers need a rest, and at Maimonides, the flow of need was relentless. Every day at 2 o'clock, go to the ER, and it just like, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon for some reason. And I always thought Saturday night, but at Maimonides, 2. And eventually they would come up with these formulas of, you know, what different ethnic groups would come in at different times. You know, the Pakistanis came in with their wives to deliver babies at two because the cab drivers all got off of work. They had all these theories of why this, of why this happened. Um, now, uh, Pam Breyer, one of the things that somebody once said to me, it seems like everybody you wrote about in your book was sick or had some medical issue. Well, it's true, especially among the hospital, um, you know, among the doctors and the administrators and the nurses who have been there a long time, you know, once you hit a certain age, you're going to have medical issues of one point or another. But I do think a lot of people tended to go into the profession either because they had some family connection or they had some personal experience, either through relatives or friends, of somebody who had had a serious illness when they died and it made an impact. It was very unusual to find somebody who had no personal connection. And, and that personal connection, I thought, was very uh, important. Two weeks before Pam Breyer took over as president of the hospital, which was two years before I showed up on the scene, she and her husband were in a car accident, which almost killed them. Uh, he broke 25 or 26 bones in his body and was in a coma for several months. And she was not as damaged as he was, but severely, severely Hurt. They had to be pried out of their car with this giant thing that was like a huge can opener. It was very, very frightening. And I 
felt that so much, uh, for better and for worse, many, many of the decisions that went into patient care came, you know, there's always the debate, should the head of a hospital be a doctor or not a doctor? But I think the question should be patient or not a patient, because I think when you spend a certain amount of time in a hospital bed, your perspective changes radically. And so all of a sudden you realize why it's important for everybody to wear badges. You know, I used to walk around with Briar and she'd be nagging at everybody about wearing badges and I thought, what the? And then I realized if you're lying in a bed in a teaching hospital, like this one, and only 97 people come through your room every day to poke and prod and peek at you, it's nice to know who they are and why they're there. And um, so she, she's an interesting character. She, she is a tough cookie and she's got a really... Um, wild bunch of uh, doctors there. It's a it's a very split kind of hospital because on some sections are very modern, very up to date for the cancer center, and previously for the heart center, they were recruiting doctors like crazy, paying fairly great salaries to bring people from Manhattan and all over the country. So there's uh, some people with unbelievable academic. Excellence, and then there's a ton of community doctors. They have a lot of physicians who actually roam through the hospital, which is different, I think, from most urban hospitals, who are the patients, primary care doctors. That you know, everybody's roaming through the halls at Maimonides. There's just a lot going on. But you know, and then you have the various communities to deal with, and so on. Very, and the hospital, I think, like most, has a huge clinical. Uh, Program And so there's one clinic where Russian is the primary language, one where Chinese is the primary language. There's an Urdu clinic. There's the Spanish. And I went, went with the various administrators to a mosque, to the local Orthodox. And Pam Breyer will go and sit down next to the Orthodox men on the male side of the spectrum, and they don't even say a word. They're terrified. She's a tiny little thing. But as her daughter said, she is a big trunk and a twig's body, and I think that fairly, so as we're going through the year at the hospital, um, internal politics, so Alan Astro arrives, I'll read you a little bit about him in a minute, well let me read to you about now so you have an idea of what kind of person it was, the person who he did these spirituality conferences with was a guy named Dan Salmezi, who's a brilliant guy, he's a physician, a philosopher, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, fantastic man, and he's a Franciscan monk, priest, but he wears civilian clothes and he's really good looking, so it's like a horrible thing, you know, he's unmarried, <laughs> it wasn't personal, it was just, just an observation, but, um, but so Maisie was very, very concerned about Astro becoming an administrator because he felt that so much of what their work was about, bringing humanity into the process, was not compatible with the kind of hard decisions you had to make um, in, in the daily crush of business. So he explained to me um, what caused them to start the spirituality conference, but also what made him concerned. Part of this groundswell of interest in spirituality comes from a sense of alienation that is not just experienced by the patient anymore. The past few decades, patients have been saying, I feel I'm just a machine, a widget on the assembly line. But lots of doctors are beginning to experience that too because of the medical industrial complex that treats doctors as another widget. It's all interchangeable parts and the chief virtue becomes efficiency rather than caring, compassion. 
Lots of physicians are feeling a sense of emptiness, alienation. Is this why I went into this? Is this what it's all about? If we're addicted to technology, is this the way out? Is there more to this than just thinking about how many colons I can put a scope up per day and how many polyps I can remove and how fast I can be and how few complications I can get? And so this was the kind of debate he would have with Astro on a sort of regular basis. But when Astro went into the field to be an administrator, he also had to worry about his budget. He had to worry about the nurses who weren't speaking to the, 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 the one doctor, the, I won't go into details, but the surgeon who's having an affair with the fellow and it's creating complications with referrals. Um, and these are, these, are, these, are real, these are real issues. And at one point, one of his fellows who was this tough, uh, orthodox young man, um, and he said, uh, I don't know. I think he maybe is too soft to be a chief. He isn't narrow-minded like most of them. He's incorporated the humanistic side of medicine, which is very unusual. I see that with patients, but administration is a different animal. You can either do it or you can't. You need single-mindedness, the ability to detach yourself from feelings. Now, I will say many of the administrators were quite good-hearted people, so I don't think it was necessary to bury those feelings, but the detachment, I think, was correct, which of course as physicians and nurses and social workers in a big busy hospital you have to do every day. Um, well, I don't know. The money aspects were mind-boggling. Um, and all I can tell you is one quote that one surgeon gave me um, after I explained the DRG. Maimonides managed to stay in the black barely, and this is, they don't have any kind of endowment whatsoever, because they had an occupancy rate of 99%, and because it had reduced the average length of stay from 8.24 days to 6.24 days. That was the magic equation. Full house and not too many people allowed to overstay their welcome. Not past the billing guidelines of the 21 insurers the hospital dealt with, compared with five or six in the days before the idea of managed care through competition took hold in the 1990s. Talk about a failed idea. The equation worked only if most of the patients kept moving through. As Joseph Cunningham, chief of surgery, said, you take any two hospitals, if I can do a coronary bypass and get a patient out into a secondary location, home, rehab, family, a day shorter than Lutheran, I put another $10,000 in my pocket. Every discharge across the board is at least $10,000 to a hospital. It's all about turnover. Everyone felt the pressure to build volume. All these people crunch numbers every day, said Amit Schwartz, a young neurosurgeon. You know when you're being looked at by Mark McDougall or Lillian or Naldi, the chief financial officer, there's a number on your head of how many cases you did the last month. They look at that number all the time. I can walk in the hallway and the president of the hospital will say, okay, you did 10 operations last week. They know everybody, who they did, how much they did. Pam Breyer acknowledged that this was true. I look at the volume every damn day, she said. I wake up every morning, I come to work, I read admissions and discharges. I read about patient discharges by service and by doctor on every single service. You sort of live and die by it. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand was Mr. Zen. Mr. Zen was a um, undocumented immigrant restaurant worker who came in through the emergency room with a huge sarcoma on his pelvis, and he stayed for a year. And he had no insurance, needless to say, and he became a charity case. 
and he became a patient everybody loved because they had a chance to get to know him. So it was one of those great ironies that here the, everybody in the hospital is working very, very hard to move all these people through and it becomes a kind of insanity and then somebody stops the clock, you know, stops the clock and in that stop clock moment, there, you know, it does, it, it's a financial nightmare but it's that moment when people got the chance to do what they were trained to do. And there was this one lovely nurse there who was on this floor that Mr. Zen was on. And she, um, she really got to know him quite well. And everybody on that floor, I watched this man, he eventually died. And people just really, he was a very sweet man. He had a very nice, you know, he didn't speak English that well, but he was very brave. He didn't, he was a perfect patient. He never complained. Um, and I think for people, it was, it gave them a chance to reflect in a way. It almost became a spiritual experience. And I don't, I don't mean that, I don't think I'm romanticizing it. Um, when Caleb and the other nurses and aides on the floor talked about Zen, their emotions were evident. Maybe they felt they knew him because cancer was the true melting pot. Unlike AIDS or diabetes, cancer was a democratic disease distributing itself with cruel impartiality, disregarding sexual behavior, eating habits, exercise, income, age, or ethnicity. External differences became more and more irrelevant because almost every cancer patient, educated or not, wealthy or not, citizen or not, eventually became fixated on the same questions. Has my tumor shrunk? Has the disease spread? Can you stop it? Is there hope? Zen had a language barrier, but that was in some ways the easiest one to circumvent. Few cancer patients are exempt from feeling confusion and uncertainty, especially after exposure to an array of doctors and nurses with varying attitudes and skill when it came to discussing prognosis and options. The medical people had a common vocabulary, but styles so different they amounted to cultural divides. Some were optimistic, some just stated factual data, some lapsed into medically, some simply said, I am not God. The gifted ones could make strong connections no matter what language their patients spoke. Caleb said she felt such a bond with Zen, and the patient indicated he reciprocated. For her, he was not an ever-shrinking mass of flesh surrounding an ever-growing tumor or the sum of his medications and symptoms. He was a man, a son, and a brother. And I think that's the hardest thing for so many people working in the medical profession. I hear it all the time from my sister. She's a geriatric specialist up in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, they've, you know they, they've gone to a, a, a kind of, not, I don't want to say socialized medicine, but it's a supposedly universal health coverage, which is wonderful. But what it means is they're now swamped with patients and their staff hasn't increased. And they have this new system based on how many points you have and you get more points if you move people through faster. She's dealing with geriatric patients. Everything is about taking history with people who, you know, sometimes have very complicated medical histories and may be seeing a lot of different doctors. And it's just, so I, I know this from the not Maimonides point of view as well. And... Um, and the cultural differences, I mean, I wish I could say it was all warm and fuzzy and cozy, but the one thing I saw very clearly was that, um, you know, on the Maimonides website, they have this really cool thing that says, we speak your language in, you know, 
60 languages. And then they always, and they had a series of ads showing babies of every possible background, and it's all very adorable, but of course in real life it's really hard when you're dealing with people from so many different backgrounds. And one day, um, this young uh, oncology fellow, Kathir Supaya, who actually is a lovely doctor, but he had one of those horrible moments of utter frankness where he was just up to his eyeballs. And we started talking, and they were having, every week they had in the cancer center biopsychosocial rounds, whose purpose is very much like these sessions um, where, uh, but using real life cases. So once a week, uh, often with the same patients where they'll have interdisciplinary rounds where um, the different, the surgeon, the radiation oncologist, the oncologist, the social worker will get together and do a medical interdisciplinary round. Later on Mondays, they would do the biopsychosocial, looking at those same patients, but dealing with everything except the medical issues. And so after these one days where they were talking about various patients from various backgrounds, and he, I could see on his face that he was just not in the mood. Um, he was tired, and he was tired of being yelled at in many different languages. And he sometimes Kathir Sapaya thought it was all just crap. Sapaya was one of the ten fellows in hematologic oncology, doctors who had completed their residency and were MDs but had decided to specialize, requiring an additional three years of training. Son of a diplomat from Malaysia, he carried himself with the confidence of privilege. I called him the prince. I hate to say it, this is horrible to say, but I'm going to say it, he told me. I've lived around the world and thought I was the least prejudiced person in the world. Since coming to Brooklyn, I've become, believe it or not, I shouldn't even say this, you're smiling, I've become a lot more prejudiced. I actually feel bad sometimes. I say, how did I come to this? Whom did he like, dislike the most, I asked him. He was hard-pressed to choose. The Orthodox Jews? He nodded. Maybe, he said, they become so demanding and are actually so derogatory when they speak to you, you think, remind me again why I should help you? Maybe the Chinese? They're very rude people, he said, nodding. Go to 8th Avenue. They don't listen to anything you tell them. They don't talk to you unless you're Chinese. They don't even look at you. What about the Russians? Oh, God, take it back. The Chinese aren't so bad, not compared to the Russians. Well, what about Sam Coppell, who's the medical director and also an oncologist at the hospital? Or Alan Astro, two of his mentors. Oh, no, they're very different, said Supaya. I don't consider them Jewish. I don't think of them that way. They're the more modernized Jew. Very decent people. I don't care whether they're Jewish, Chinese, whatever. What about Dr. Wang? He's very different, said Sapaya. He's one of the people who makes you feel bad saying bad things about Chinese. You say, damn, he breaks the mold. <laughs> so later on, I would see him in different situations where he is actually a very lovely young man. And I, I, I felt like um, I should just read you this one little section to redeem him, <laughs> where he was brought in um, to have to talk to a Bengali family where the mother was... Uh, very sick, very dying of cancer, and he didn't want to know anything, the family didn't want to know anything, and they had to find somebody who spoke this particular Bengal dialect, and they found this young guy who was so sweet, who was a blood bank worker, who actually had had some medical training um, back in India, which is where he was from, 
and he uh, wanted to become a doctor but was working in the blood bank. And I just found out that he's actually um, it now in the residency program there because he had gone to medical school. He just had to, I don't know, something with immigration. So it, he made it through that, whatever it was, and now he is um, on his way to becoming a doctor. He was doing the interpretation. Um, but I watched Sapaya, and so what was horrible about this um, Sapaya agreed to talk to Mrs. Debbie's husband and son, Keen, who was the social worker, and I joined them outside the patient's room, where we smiled and nodded awkwardly at one another, waiting for the interpreter to arrive. So we were waiting there with the father, who uh, spoke very, very little English, and the son, who spoke somewhat more. Um, the interpreter's name was Azim Rahman, a slender man in a shirt and tie with brown skin and black hair worn slicked back who had studied medicine and wanted to become a physician. For five years, he'd been working in the Maimonides blood bank. There was no private room for family conferences on that floor. Sapaya and Rahman had to deliver Mrs. Debbie's death sentence under a fluorescent light in a busy hallway. Uh, so then they go back and forth, uh, Sapaya is talking, Raman is translating, and then at a certain point the young doctor goes into the room just to examine the mother uh, alone. Not to tell her anything at that point, but to examine her. And when he came back out, when Sapaya emerged rubbing Purell on his hands, the son pressed him for answers. Sapaya again was gentle. I know you're looking for an answer, he said. I wish I could give it. We'll do what we can. Raman, a Muslim like the Devis, told the husband and son that the hospital would do everything that could be done, and they responded, what happens is God-given. And he said the doctors would use the latest technology. Later he told me, I feel sad because this is a great loss for them, but I don't know how to console them. The hurt and love in the eyes of the sun, the tender helplessness of the young physician and the blood bank worker required no translation. Transcendence one minute, frustration the next. The convergence at Maimonides distilled the sweet and sour verites of humanity into a heady, combustible brew that could expand consciousness or cause it to implode. And I think that everybody who works in this profession feels that to one degree or another every day. Uh, what was fascinating about this hospital was that everything was just sort of on, on, on steroids, on hyperdrive. And um, I was telling somebody before the talk that I've gotten many, many responses to the book from all over the country, and my favorite was from a physician who works at a small hospital in Maine, uh, probably very much like the one where my father uh, kept his patients in West Union, Ohio. And she wrote to me and said, well, I read your book, she said, and nothing about Maimonides has anything to do with the hospital I'm at. She said, but everything is exactly the same. <laughs> and so that made me feel really great as a writer, but I think these issues, you know, the cast of characters change. Now, one thing I know they don't have at the hospital in Maine is Douglas Jablon, yeah, I have a couple more minutes. Yeah, Jablon is a particular character. I'm sure you have patient representatives here. At Maimonides, they have a huge staff of them, like 30, and they pride themselves on the number of languages they speak, and their, their, their facilitator-in-chief is this six-foot-two Orthodox Jew named Douglas Jablon, who is a real... 
piece of work, and he is almost like a separate secret, you know, secret diplomacy, that's Douglas. He's the secret envoy that goes around and gets things done. The problem is he has a very soft heart, so the, they, the joke at the hospital is that everybody's a VIP, a very important patient, but the problem is if everybody's a VIP, nobody's a VIP. Um, but I kind of like that, to tell you the truth, but he really is a, an interesting character, and um, this is sort of his understanding of what his job is. Uh, Jablon's conciliatory nature was linked to fears of authority and anti-Semitism and to demons he was reluctant to discuss, though he once mentioned he was estranged from his brother over a matter of money. But if Jablon had a shrewd mentality, he was the first to acknowledge that the shtetl had gone multicultural. When Stanley Bresnoff, who was Pam Breyer's predecessor, declared the hospital's new policy of community engagement, Javelin turned his staff's attention there. We never got any Chinese people, and we decided to dive into it, he said. Why should these people, God forbid, they get really sick, they have a terrible disease, cancer, heart problems, God forbid they get a heart attack and go to another hospital in New York that's more oriented to their languages, that's a sin. God forbid a stroke, and here we are a minute away. Or chemotherapy, why should they schlep? So that, now... That's a humanistic, wonderful thing. It's also a business decision because every time they schlep here, they're not going there. And the whole function of this hospital is this very tight, keep it full, keep it busy, and everything that's good, keeping it full and keeping it busy is what makes it very precarious every second of the day. And that's why they need the code of mutual respect. That's why they need to have this whole complicated apparatus going um, to keep it from imploding or exploding. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's 6.15, okay, I'm supposed to... Feel, you know what, let me read one more thing and then I'll take questions because you might have some, and if you don't, then I'll make up some myself. Um, but I hope you have some. I hope you have some. But I did want to have... Um, you know, we were talking earlier about single-payer system. You know, of course, every... Every solution, as they're seeing in Massachusetts, creates many new, uh, won't call them problems, let's call them challenges. It's the Obama era, so we have to be positive, which is good. Um, but um, every day, one of the things that I saw, which was incredible, um, I, as I said earlier, one of the big issues at the hospital is keeping the floors clean. So they had these, you know, Pam Breyer is a big, uh, you know, she came up through the public health system. So she loves, you know, po you know, uh, what do you call it? little focus groups, and you know, consultants come in, and so they had had consultants come in to come to help with the with the clean floor issue, and they had the seven step system, which is actually quite good on how to clean a room. I took home the thing and actually been using it in my house, uh, <laughs> which is not quite as bad as a hospital room, but. Um, but I have animals, so it's almost as bad. And, um, but I met this woman, Margie Morales, who was the head of the, uh, the task force to try and improve the system. And she was somebody who cleaned the floors there. She had had a completely different business. Her husband died in the hospital. She felt warmly towards it. Some hospitals have philanthropists at Maimonides. They get people in the community who actually then come to give back, which is a really... 
fantastic thing, and that's very palpable in this place. It's, it is still a community hospital, even though it wants very much to be a world-class medical center, which in some ways it is. It's still a community hospital, but I would argue, especially in a big city or probably anywhere, all hospitals are community hospitals because that is something that I think has so much straight out of the equation. I love the idea of pillar of the community. It should exist, and I think sometimes we forget about that. So every day of Maimonides, I was reminded that the healthcare system wasn't anonymous or abstract. It was the sum of individual human successes and failures, each of which could build or destroy. Most people didn't set out to screw things up. They just didn't take time to remember or to learn the legacy of the man whose name the hospital carried. Maimonides, the philosopher-physician, valued daily self-scrutiny. In his commentaries, he wrote, quote, the perfect man needs to inspect his moral habits continually, weigh his actions, and reflect upon the state of his soul every day. The hospital, however, was populated by humans, imperfect men and women existing in an imperfect world. Politicians started out believing in the social contract and then forgot their duty to fight for the people they represented. Drug and insurance executives said their desire was to improve and protect health care but their jobs and fortunes depended on profitability, not on making medicine available to everyone. Technocrats worshipped faster and more efficient machines that helped prolong health and life, but they neglected empathy, understanding, and the probing that requires genuine conversation and time. Doctors planned to devote their lives to healing and then spent too much time analyzing their bank accounts or nursing bruised egos instead of making sure the system provided for their patients. Patients agreed with all of the above, but failed to accept responsibility for the abuses they inflicted on themselves by working too hard, exercising too little, and smoking, drinking, and eating too much. Depending on the day or night, life in the hospital could seem full of exquisite promise or pointless despair. The system was tainted by callous disregard for decent and equitable care, by money lust, by corporate influence, and by lack of political will but a great many people who were part of the system wanted something better. And on that note, I will stop talking and see if you have any questions. Okay, thank you. son, but I won't say that, who always thinks I'm a nuisance, but um, I think the advantage of a busy place is that it's easy to be invisible. There's so much going on all the time that you quickly fade into the background, and um, you know, the thing about a teaching hospital is people often travel in packs, so one more person in the pack is fairly easily uh, digested. Um, the other thing is I, was, I tried to be very respectful of the situation, and so I would never barge into a patient's room without somebody going ahead and asking permission 
with the patients, bless you, to introduce me because the patients were in a separate category. I would go up to other people. And what I found would happen at the beginning, people were a little nervous and a little uh, apprehensive. But you know, if you're there day in and day out, you become very familiar. I'm not a very threatening person, I think, which probably helps. Um, and I was, and I think the other thing is I was truly, genuinely interested in what was going on. And as most of you know, I mean, probably everybody in this room spends most of your day asking people questions. Probably very few people ask you questions. So the most exciting question to most people is, tell me about, tell me about what you do. And that's a very, very, um, and I really wanted to know. It was a polite party conversation. So that was it. Um, Having said that, I was shocked at how easy it was. <laughs> Question? Yes. Uh, one, one graceful comment and two quick questions. Um, I, I hadn't decided whether to comment on your muscular prose until the very beginning. You put both epicenter and petri dishes in one sentence, and I decided that that uh, it needed to be commented on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the first question about, about content. Um, you mentioned in your comments, but in the book, there was very little about primary care doctors. There was a lot about specialists and surgeons. Yeah. I was wondering if you could comment about the role of primary care doctors in that community. And the second was a, a more of a craft question. Um, when you mentioned time in the 12 chapters, the opening of the cancer center was this moment in your book you kept on going back to, mm -hmm. away, back, away, mm -hmm, back, mm -hmm. at least half a dozen times. Yeah. Was, and that was almost like the epicenter of, of, of the book. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how you um, constructed the, the book around that. that that's a, those are great questions. Um, and thank you for the muscular prose. <laughs> Something should be muscular. Um, uh, the question of the primary care doctors, I will tell you that at the end of the year, I, I transcribe all my own tapes and all my own notes. I had 5,000 single-space type pages of notes. I'm a little obsessive. Um, and so many things had to fall by the wayside. I mean, they deliver more babies at Maimonides than at any other hospital. There was a part of me that wanted to do the, just the, the, the babies. That alone would have been a book. Um, the primary care doctors were so hugely important, um, but it was that was one area where Maimonides was so different from other hospitals because so many primary care doctors from the community see their patients in the hospital, um, and how to sort of and they came and went and they weren't really of the hospital. So it was just a question really of deciding what I was gonna focus on because it's already a good sized book and so it, it could have gone just as easily another way. But, but once I had made the decision about the cancer center and the cancer center I wanted very much because of its, because of the financial ramifications and partly honestly because Astro was going there and he was the guy who I was following. So some of it was purposeful and some of it was accidental. In terms of the structure of the book, structuring a book like this, on the one hand you think, oh, a year in the life of, but as you know, hospitals are chaotic, unwieldy places, and then you also have to give the history and so much context, and how do you structure a book? 
and time and the things that you're always thinking of is character, you're thinking of time, you're thinking of story. How do you keep, there's so much going on in here as there is in all hospitals. And if nothing else, what I wanted people who work in hospitals to come away from was an idea of how complicated the organism is that they spend all their lives in. And many people, many people at Maimonides told me after they read the book they had no idea about different aspects of their own hospital. So when I was structuring the book, I was very um, concerned about just helping the reader get through the book. How do you help them stay grounded in time? And so the cancer center, I mean, it's a little bit of a fake device, but it was just to say, well, it opened in May, and now it's, you know, how's it doing? And then tying the financial, and, and it was a real thing that so much of the hospital's financial health, especially during the first two years of the cancer center operation, the year I was there and then the subsequent, was tied to the losses they were taking on the cancer center. And so that became, um, it became a structural device uh, to help me just get through the book, just like and and we we struggled over that, you know. Like I, and and at a certain point, I started putting in these journal entries. At first, I put them in, not really intending to keep them. My editor really liked them, and she said, "Now I want you to." Well, I had thousands of pages of them, and um, the main thing always, you know, when I go through, when I finish the book. In manuscript, I did a couple of things, was go through and really make a, a time chart to see, is this tracking? And then I would go through and just do silly things like, how did I start that chapter and how did I end it? Because I didn't want the chapters to have a sameness. You know, I wanted, you know, I didn't want to start every chapter with a quote or end it with a cliffhanger, but some you did. And so a lot of it is just um, momentum and pacing, which is completely separate from the content. And then how do you keep it interesting without trivializing the content, which is so important? And so all of those things are kind of, you're juggling so many different things all at once. Yes? I'm interested in your decision to name names mm -hmm. and quote, mm -hmm. uh, forgive and remember, which is a fly on the wall, spent uh, journal of a sociologist uh, experience and an unnamed yeah. hospital with unnamed doctors. Now, not everything you quoted people on is to their credit, right. at least from the small sample. Uh, how did you make that decision? Uh, you gave a redeeming quality to that doctor, but there must be something in the book where there is no redeeming quality. Were you your own editor? Were you your own uh, legal counsel? Did the administration have any uh, opportunity to edit, or did that supply solely with you? Very good questions. Um, to answer the last one first, the administration had no, that, that's what made it so incredible, because for me, it was really important to have it be an independent project. Having said that, I will say probably I read huge portions of the book to various people to check mainly for um, mistakes. And, I, and I'm happy to say that in this entire book, um, I, I think 
half a dozen errors have been pointed out, and they're stupid copy editing errors. One in one, Edgar Wickstein, who's the head of internal medicine, and there was Edgar in one place and Edward in another. Somebody should have caught that. And they've been all corrected for, I think it refers to, um, what's his name, Ingle, Ingle, famous, used to the, the original editor of the New England Journal, Inglefinger. Um, I have his specialty wrong. It's been changed in the, in the, because the problem is this is not an academic book, so I don't have peer review, which in some ways would have been very helpful. So I feel proud of the fact that there have been, you know, and believe me, I've had a lot of doctors go through this. I did have several physicians read it just to make sure that the medical stuff was accurate. Um, why did I use real names? Because my experience as a journalist is whenever people don't use real names, they lie. They just do. It, you, it, it just... I don't care how responsible they are. It's just, well, this isn't quite, you know, I think if you're using real names and you tell people always, everything was on tape, everything was, you know, everybody knew what I was doing. It was never a secret. Now, having said that, people talk and don't think about what they're saying. But I think that you're held to a different level of... Um, responsibility when you use real names in a non-fiction book. If it's fiction, do whatever you want. But if you're calling, because I have, I will tell you, I read a number of fly-on-the-wall books by different, and I, and as somebody who knows real from fake, I, I could have pointed to you the fake parts of the book. I just think it lets people off the hook, you know, as a writer, you know, because you're taking responsibility. You know, if I don't get this right, then, then you can sue me, and you should. Um, and I feel, you know, I, I got, I think, very, very good. My best training was at, really at the Wall Street Journal, where before I was a film critic, I was the banking reporter. Wouldn't it be nice to be doing that now? But I had um, really, I think, very, very good training on, you know, it's very serious stuff that you're doing. And I will promise you that I was very, very kind. <laughs> there are many things that are not in the book about many of the people that were they in the book would be much worse. <laughs> and, I, and honestly, I think in the end, most people come off very well. I really do. I mean, I wasn't out there to crucify people at all because I thought most people had good intent. Yes? First, I want to congratulate you for talking about the dirty secret of money because, you know, we, we're going to have thing in America was limits, not sex, was politics. I'm curious about the pastoral care aspect of the hospital, because that you called a article two weeks ago about uh, you know the very religious wanting more care and right. God's miracle on top of the doctor's miracle. And even though they're patient advocates, I think the well-trained pastoral care person can deal with the entire culture. And you use the wonderful word organism. Uh, like uh, Lewis Thomas's Lives of a Cell. Yeah. It seems to me that I wonder about the other one about I say Schwartz Rounds. How do they right. really recreate a mesh kind of model of, of with all of the ambiguity? Not very good. Surprising. Although they've started Schwartz rounds, actually. Astro brought them in. They're doing Schwartz rounds there now. After I left. Um, uh, they've, they've actually instituted those rounds, which I think are good. The, the bizarre thing about having such a heavy preponderance of Orthodox Jews, the Orthodox bring in their own 
They bring in their, you know, there's a million Rebbe's walking around. They're Rebbe's galore. And then they did have a wonderful chaplain, and they had the imam who visited on a regular basis. But having said that, it seemed somewhat hit or miss to me. You know, it didn't seem like there was a, a an organized, methodical way of going about it. And I think part of that does stem from the orthodox roots of the hospital because within the orthodox community there's so much argument and so much quarreling about what the right thing to do is and I think it kind of spreads hospital wise which doesn't mean to say that they don't have the chaplains there but I uh, and I don't know if it's changed that much with the Schwartz rounds but there was surprisingly little spirituality I mean Astra would comment on that quite a bit that how much more um, of that kind of thing went on at St. Vincent's and not not Catholic necessarily, but just as a gestalt of the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of these. I mean, they have a huge, huge number of patients on ventilators there. Really disproportionate, and that again is is they have a huge Catholic constituency and a huge Orthodox constituency, and between the two of them, that's why you have so many babies and so many people on ventilators. So it's it's very very complex, and and the and the, the and there was a lot of rabbi shopping. So a lot of it just came down to the families. If the family decided they wanted to find a certain result, they'd keep going until they found, you know. So it. I, I totally agree with you, and it's a shame that it's not. I'm hoping that the Schwartz rounds, uh, bless you, uh, helps, but I think it'll be a long way, a long time coming in that atmosphere there. Yes? Um, I, I'm impressed with your level of investment in this institution, and I wonder what you see as your future with Maimonides. Well, that's a good question. Uh, my future with Maimonides, well, I, um, I've stayed on very good terms with many, many people there. Um, they're having a hospital-wide something in May, and I'm going to be the keynote speaker. <laughs> I'll find out what it is, but I thought what I'm going to do with that actually is talk to the hospital. It's going to be for hospital employees to talk to them. I, I'm going to bring them a stack of the letters that I've gotten from people around the country um, commending them. Because, you know, like any place, they complain a lot, and it does seem kind of rough and tumble sometimes, but I think ultimately they do a good job. Um, but long term, I think we'll just have a friendly, you know, I'm a writer, we move on to the next thing, I think. <laughs> yes? Um, I was a little late, unfortunately. How were you at, actually at an office interviewing people was my first question. Yeah. And the second question was actually not a question for a comment. I think your point about uh, even in places the tertiary care institution, they still are primary care for the people in the neighborhood cannot be, you know, emphasized enough. I think there is that always that spectrum. Yeah. I was there for a year, but the year is kind of a fake number because I was, for six months before I was there, I was doing a ton of pre-research just to find out about the place. I mean, I did tons of interviews before I decided to take the leap. And then in the year and that I was writing the book and then the subsequent 
nine months of editing and preparing, I was constantly going back and visiting. So it was a year with a little, with a little, yeah, with a little extra on either end. But the actual being there, and I tried in the course of that year to be there at weird times. So to be there overnight, to be there, you know, because it's a very different place at night than it is as, in the, as all hospital exactly. And to be there actually on Friday night, which at Maimonides, because of the religious observance, is really quite interesting. Um, you know, they have a light there because uh, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you can't be in the same building as somebody who's died. And so they have the Kohen, if you're a Kohen, if you're part of the priestly tribe, and so they have a light that goes on on the front to warn everybody to evacuate visitors. Not if somebody's died, one, it's a hospital, so the light goes on quite frequently, <laughs> but not to scare anybody. So, oh wait, one more question. Tremendous diversity of staff. That was one of the things that was so incredible. In the patient rep department, they have a book that's updated every year when they need interpreters so that they don't have to use those phone lines. They have a list of every of every employee. Of employees can volunteer to do this, so they have every language. So when I say sixty-seven languages, some years it's seventy-two, some years it's fifty-eight, depending on you know who's around, because that really reflects the staff as much as the patients because they'll volunteer to be interpreters. And one of my favorite moments was actually a graduate of Columbia, a young resident who I love, David Koh. He was a young uh, Chinese, Amer well, Chinese born in Singapore, but ultimately moved here. And he was married to a um, another Columbia medical student graduate, a Puerto Rican Jew, half Puerto Rican, half Jewish, and I found him interpreting twice, once for a Chinese patient and once for a Spanish patient, so it was sort of perfect. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you.